Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Burns. How you doing? I'm doing just great. Well, that's, you? I am doing great. It looks like spring is going to come eventually and uh, lots of news going on. But today we are joined by Steve Markey, who is VP Sales and Marketing for Hogwild Toys. He's an industry veteran. He's got a lot to tell us about. We're looking forward to it. But first, this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We're brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the Toy Guy, and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. And Steve, welcome. Thank you for uh, subjecting yourself to this. Well, thanks for having me. It's um, it's a, a pleasure and an honor. So many of my friends have been on this podcast and so many people that I admire within the industry. So it's it's an honor to be here. And you're relatively new at Hogwild. You've just taken over in, in this role pretty much uh, in the last few months. Tell us a little bit about your career and how you got to this point. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, you're, you're right. I've been with Hogwild for just about just a couple of months now. I got into the toy industry uh, right around 1990, and I was hired by Ertl, um, out of the you get you guys remember Erto out of Dyersville, Iowa? Of course. Of course. And so I was, it was kind of interesting. I, I was hired to run sales and marketing in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And I was living in the UK at the time. And unusually, they they really wanted somebody rather than somebody from the toy industry, they wanted somebody who who was more of a linguist. And my degree was in French and Spanish, and I also spoke some German and Italian. And they wanted somebody who could go and visit their distributors all over the world and speak to them in their own language. Wow. And they figured it was a lot easier to teach me the toy industry than it was to teach me five <laughs> languages. So that's how we pro- we approached it. And uh, I've been in the toy industry ever since. That's a, that's amazing. Steve, it really intrigues me what you just said. So many of us are monolingual. We only speak English. And we only speak English because we don't have to speak anything else. And yet you have multilingual ability. Do you think that has given you advantages in communicating and understanding cultures? I, I really do. I absolutely believe that. And the other thing that, that, that I think distributors appreciate, you know, if I, if I go to France or Spain or I go to South America, a lot of times the people I'm speaking to, their English is better than my French or Spanish. But we still we still speak in French or Spanish because I think they appreciate someone making an effort to learn their language, to speak their language. But also, I think they they appreciate the break. <laughs> it's exhausting speaking another language. And if they get a chance not to do it, I think they like it. The other advantage I've had is, you know, I can I can translate our packaging. So we've saved a lot of money on packaging translations over the years. <laughs> um, you know, there's, there's just a, a lot of great things that that come out of learning languages. I think that was a very sophisticated way of approaching it by Ertl. And I don't know that I've heard of any other toy company, though they may have, looking for people who are multilingual. Yeah, I've actually thought about that since then. And and I agree. I mean, I, it was very fortunate for me because I ended up in the toy industry, which, you know, where else could, you know, what else is better than being in the toy industry? So Steve, speaking of being in the toy industry, this has been a challenging time and you are just back from the only toy fair that is happening in London. And give us some insight on on what was going on there. We've heard a lot of things, but you were boots on the ground for us there. 
Yeah, and it was kind of funny how I ended up going. I was I was on a call the Wednesday before the UK Toy Fair. I was on a call with Hogwild's owner in Taiwan, and we were chatting about our international business. And I was talking about how I thought we were missing out on a lot of potential business internationally. And he said, I think we should put it on the back burner for another year because there are, there are just no toy fairs to meet distributors. So I said, well, actually, the UK toy fair starts next Tuesday. And so he just said, any chance you could go? So, <laughs> so like basically with, with three days notice, I flew over to the UK and I met with a lot of distributors. It was probably one of the most positive experiences I've ever had at a trade show. People, I think people in the past have been a little cynical about trade shows, you know, especially at the beginning of the year when a lot of us, we go to Hong Kong, we do Nuremberg, we do New York, we do all the regionals like Vegas, Atlanta, Dallas. And so you you kind of get a little trade showed out to an extent. And then this time around, because no one had really done a show for two years, everyone was hugging in the aisles or socially distancing if they had to, but people were so happy to see each other. And all of that cynicism around trade shows absolutely disappeared. I have had some conversations with other people who were at the show and they described it as almost being old fashioned, that business was being done. People were writing orders. It was like yes. a throwback feel. Is that what you experienced? Ab- absolutely, absolutely. The uh, the only thing that felt contemporary about it was the fact that people were wearing masks. Aside from that, it was it was yeah it was it was like doing a, an old school trade show where it was pretty much almost all exhibitors and buyers. Very very few influencers influencers and social media people were in there. They deliberately limited those numbers. And then a lot of times, you know, you'll have packaging sales reps at trade shows, and you'll also have a lot of logistics people there. And obviously, the, I think the logistics people were too scared to show their faces this time. But, yeah, um, yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Would think. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it was just, it was definitely just a just a great feeling of of positivity from everybody. And I think buyers were happy to see products and pick up products and actually touch it. And, and you know, the, the salespeople, the manufacturers were just happy to see their customers in person. And, and pretty much all the big customers showed up too. And what was the international representation like there? It was pretty strong from a European point of view, people from mainland Europe. There were a handful of people from the US, but, you know, I, I do the UK toy fair almost every year. And there's definitely kind of a, a hardcore of us that, that always go and often have dinner together. And not all of them were there this year. In the 30 odd years you've been in the industry, what are you experiencing now? And what are you anticipating? Um, I'm experiencing, kind of going back to what we just said about the UK, people have found a way to survive without trade shows. But I think it's hard to really thrive without them. I think people really miss that international presence. And, you know, we're all, you know, particularly the first three months of the year, you know, you, you kind of take on a second family of people that you see everywhere you go. And and so we're all missing that. I, I think the trade show, the whole scene is, is going to change moving forward, but I, I, I think they'll come back. There's a lot of people saying trade shows are, are you know, they're not going to, they're not going to make a comeback, but I, I really feel strongly that people still really enjoy them. People still want to see product live rather than via Zoom. We've heard that even in some of the Zoom presentations that people you're presenting to 
turn off their camera. So you're speaking into the void. I don't know if that's happened to you and you don't need to tell us, but but I have heard from several toy companies that they're presenting to a major and you know they don't even know if the person is, is in the room. <laughs> I don't know that that's happened, but it, in my case, it wouldn't surprise me. I keep coming back to this notion that when you make a physical call and you show up at a trade show, there is an emotional, physical, and financial investment. And you pay a lot of attention and you get fully engaged. When you sit at your computer, it hasn't cost you anything. I think people don't engage as much. I really feel that what you described in the UK is, is so important, getting people together. There's an, adrenal, an adrenaline rush that comes with being at a trade show that you don't get any other way. There's, there's somebody that I, I used to work with a long time ago who was the CEO of, of one of the companies I was at. And as we were starting New York Toy Fair every year, he'd gather the team together and he'd say, this is our Super Bowl. <laughs> yeah. which I, I've never forgotten. And whenever I go into a big show like like New York or Nuremberg nowadays, I always remember this is our Super Bowl. So let's shift gears and talk a little bit about your company, your new company, Hogwild Toys. And many of our listeners may not know them as, as well as Richard and I do. You're mainly known for your poppers, which are hilarious uh, games. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the toy line and where you're hoping to take it in the next year or so. Yeah, so we, we we kind of have a mix of what I guess you would call evergreen products like the poppers that we have in lots of different forms. And, and for people who don't know the poppers, they're basically PVC, usually animals, but also other characters that you put a little foam ball in there and you shoot the balls, um, you shoot the foam balls out at each other. And it's, it's just soft, safe, harmless fun. And then beyond that, we've got Probably the things we're most excited about this year is um, a new game called Tapes, which is one of the funnest new products I've ever been allowed to demonstrate. The way that works is that it's a measuring game and it's pretty open-ended because you can you can pretty much pick anything and say, how big do you think this is? So you can say, how wide is our TV? <laughs> but the twist is you've got different units of measurement. So you can say, how wide is our TV in hamsters? or how tall is this table in wiener dogs? And so there's just lots of different measurements and it teaches kids all about measuring and relativity. So it's got an educational aspect to it, but it's just great fun. No two games that you play are the same. So that's that's always a, a great, great game. And and is this Hogwild's first foray into the, into the games category? We've had a couple of other games. One that we actually distributed for somebody else called the Upside Down Challenge. Oh, yes, and then we have um, and then we have a pizza party game that, that that's also our own. I know both of those games very well. And one of the things that that I think is so interesting about what you do with the poppers and your your novelty types of items is you have different channels of retail. And I know in preparing for this, I talked to some people about what you guys are doing and that you are looking at different classes of retail. Specifically, the thing that came up was truck stops. One of our top 10 accounts for Hogwild is a chain of truck stops. For somebody who's been in the toy industry for over 30 years, this is an account that I'd never even heard of. And I, I've always found that whenever I, when I go into new companies and I look at sales reports, there's always at least one huge <laughs> customer in there doing hundreds of thousands of dollars that I've never even heard of. And I, I think for me, that just speaks to the potential of, of the toy industry, that there are so many channels 
that you can that you can sell products to. I mean, we've done you know in the past a lot of business in shoe shops. One company we had a we had a line of bath toys and and a swim school in the Midwest became a really big customer for us. In the UK, one of the biggest chains of, of distribution for the toy industry is garden centers. Uh-huh. So it's just, yeah, I mean, you you know, and in the, and in the US now, we've done a lot of business with, with candy stores. There are just so many places where if you kind of put on your, your sales hat when you walk into these retailers and think, could I see my products in here? And then kind of, then the sales muscle kicks in and you're like, okay, I can. How do I get them in here? It's so satisfying when, you know, three months later or six months later, your products are on shelf in those stores. And how do you manage that? Do you manage that through sales reps? Do you manage that through internal dedicated sales force to those channels? How how do you how did you structure that? We we do both, and that's one of the things that I love about the sales rep system in the U.S. is that we we have probably about ninety sales reps, and because they're selling a lot of different lines that are not necessarily competitive with us that might fit into you know, a completely different retail that wouldn't have thought of buying our products. When the reps in there are selling maybe something that is more candy related, the buyers at the same time will take, will just say something like, hey, you got anything else that's interesting? Or the rep will say, hey, you should take a look at this. It's doing really well. And that's, you know, that's a great way to get additional distribution. Um, we do do some of it internally as well. So I, I will, you know, often I'll, I'll be in a store and I'll say, hey, you know what? I think these guys could sell our products. And then, you know, maybe I'll chat with the guy behind the counter and just say, you know, who, how do I get to your buyers? And they'll usually give me some kind of corporate details and I can track them down or you can often track, often track them down on LinkedIn nowadays. If you, you know, if you want to buy, if you want to find a buyer at any retail chain, you can just go on LinkedIn. And with apologies to Kevin Bacon, there are no longer six degrees of separation. You can get to these guys <laughs> in two. I want to go back to the alternate sales channels because that that just fascinates me. Are there products that that fit best that you offer in those channels? Seems like the poppers would be a perfect item for that. And I'm curious about margins and can you get a full margin in an alternate channel that you might not get in a big box store? So that that's a great question. Um, we you can get a full margin, but a lot of times the margin the retailer is taking tends to be a little bit higher. But their retails are also a little bit higher. So, you know, where our poppers are selling at a certain price in, in a specialty store around the US, if you go into a truck, a truck stop, it might be a dollar or two higher. To go back to the, the question about the kinds of products that sell, it's, it's really interesting because the natural inclination would be to say impulse products. Anything that's impulse priced is great. It's parents with their kids in the car. The kids are, you know, they've been in the car for nine hours. <laughs> They're coming back from Thanksgiving road trip. And so you the parents want to give them something to, to basically just occupy them for, a, for a, an hour or two. But I was having coffee with a, a good friend of mine recently who's kind of more in the, the sporting goods industry. And his biggest customer is also a truck stop. And their number one item is a trampoline. Wow. Yeah. That's but amazing. It's, it's, and so I'm like, what, how, how does that work? He said, well, first of all, if you're a trucker, you've got a lot of space to store a trampoline. He said, but if you're a family in a car and you're driving home, you order it in the store and we drop ship it to your home when you, uh-huh. so it's there when you get back. Again, it just it, it speaks to how creative people people get when they really want to find a way to do business. So I do want to follow up on the on the kids in the car thing because I, I think the poppers might not necessarily work in the <laughs> yeah. car. My my three brothers and I, when we used to go on log 
car trips had small super balls and we would fling them around the car and god bless my parents because as long as it stayed in the back seat and the far back of the station wagon it was okay but but uh <laughs> I, I i totally agree but i would tell you our number one selling product at the truck stop is a popper of course it is of course it is because they're <laughs> funny they're funny people see them and they say oh that's funny and i'm gonna bring that bring that home we recently ran a survey of the toy industry and we asked them what was on their mind, basically. And one of the things that was least on their mind was anything to do with global warming or, you know, anything with the green movement. And you were, a, I believe, a pioneer in the green movement within the toy industry. The company you worked at was called Green Toys. Yep. Do you think we're getting it yet as an industry that kids are really concerned about the environment and their parents are too? I think it depends on the age of the kids. I think the parents are to an extent. The one thing that we learned at Green Toys that fortunately we figured out very, very quickly and was kind of our guiding principle is it's great to be green, but first you've got to be a great toy first. People would not buy it just because it was green. They they looked at that as a secondary benefit, but if it wasn't a great toy and it wasn't reasonably priced, we could be a little higher and people would pay that green premium. But if it wasn't a great dump truck, they wouldn't have bought it anyway. A bit ago, Richard and I participated in a panel for the Toy Association on the future of retail. And it was it was a pretty interesting conversation. And I, I want to ask you the question that, that I asked everybody at the end of that, and it's a two-part question. First, what is the biggest challenge facing retail in 2022? And second, get out your crystal ball and tell me what retailing is gonna be like in five years from your perception. So let's start with what are the biggest challenges for retail in 2022? Um, I think probably the biggest challenge is, is fighting the online giants, but that's always been a challenge. Maybe 10, 15 years ago, I would talk to a specialty retailer and they would say to me, we're not buying, buying your products if they're on Amazon. Whereas nowadays, they're like, okay, we've probably figured out that Amazon's not going anywhere at this point. It's how do we differentiate ourselves? At specialty retail and, and even at, at, at you know some of the, the bigger box retailers, it's really, what can I offer that Amazon can't offer? And that that's the challenge for them. And you know, when I look at specialty toy stores, most of them have figured it out. Most of them have figured it out that a really great curator selection of product, gift wrapping, the fact that you can walk into a specialty toy store and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I've got a nine-year-old boy's birthday party tomorrow. I want to spend $25. What do you suggest? The store owner can, can help you with that. They can gift wrap it beautifully, and you can walk out knowing that you've got a, a perfect gift. And so cast your, your mind to the future. What do you see as the future of retailing? What's retailing going to look like in the toy business in five years? You know, it's interesting. So I, I, I think, you know, retail is, is constantly evolving. I mean, when I, when I think about when I first moved to the U.S. in 1996, my biggest accounts were Ames, Bradley's, Caldor, and Service Merchants. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I think yeah. the, one, the one thing you can learn there is the, the only constant is change. Right. <laughs> I would love to see somebody come along to to either replace or compensate for Toys R Us because I think that's been a huge loss to the industry because that was that was such a great place to launch new products right. on, a, on a scale that yes, you couldn't right. do anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
that was always a favorite account. So I, I'd like to see somebody come along and, and be a very large specialty players, kind, kind of like Smith's has done in Europe, mm-hmm. where they've they've pretty much seamlessly taken over the, the place of Toys R Us. Steve, you've been in the industry for 30 years, newcomer, and <laughs> you've been all over the world with this. You've built up a huge network of, of friends and colleagues. How do you leverage that network for the betterment of the industry? You know, there's a really good example just last week when I was in the UK, when I was I was just standing chatting to a, a UK manufacturer and a US manufacturer happened to work, walk by who used to be a competitor of his, but they were they were friendly and very much admired competitors. And I introduced them and, and this US manufacturer just mentioned the fact that she'd actually just left to set up her own design studio. And the UK guy just said, well, I've always admired your work. Is there, you know, would you be interested in doing some design for us? And she said, yes. And they're, they're talking now and, you know, they're getting pretty close to launching a whole new portfolio of products for next year. Wow. And that was, that was just because of a chance meeting in, in the aisle in London. The best thing that ever happens at any single trade show is something you didn't plan for or expect. So, Steve... We have a new question we're asking everybody in season four of the Playground podcast. We'd like you to tell us your favorite play experience as a child. Okay, my, my favorite and my, my most memorable play experience as a child, and I also did prepare a great secret, by the way, but I guess that's gone now. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite play experience as a child, um, and, and which kind of stays with me today, is that I, I'm, a, I'm a huge lover of word games. Scrabble, I will, anybody who, who will play Scrabble with me, I will sit down with them and give them three hours of my life anytime. And my, my favorite play experience was just playing Scrabble with my mom in England. And she would sit and she she was in no hurry to finish a game of Scrabble. Uh-huh. And so we, so we would sit and it was her turn and she would rearrange the tiles on the, on the rack and she'd rearrange them again. And she'd take about 45 minutes to play a word. And when she finally put the word down, it averaged a score of about four points. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. You teased us. What is your secret? <laughs> so the secret actually goes goes back, and you you might want to cut this one out because it's. it's um, but when we when we were at Green Toys one night, we were kind of doing one of our late late office hour product brainstorming sessions. And we had our best-selling product at the time was a dump truck. And so we were kind of deciding, you know, what direction do we take that that product line in? And so we decided that we could make it into a child's potty. (laughs) And it would be be called literally a dump truck. I love that. (laughs) I love that. That's the kind of wit and and fun that that the toy industry creates. And I remember when I was a copywriter at CBS Toys, we would send things upstairs and one of the product managers would come down apoplectic and go, this is a serious business. And we would, we would, we would do anyway, but we had a lot of fun doing that. So we'd love to hear that. Steve Markey, Vice President Sales and Marketing, Hogwild Toys. We are so glad to have had this time to talk with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Chris and Richard. It's been a pleasure. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are top of mind in the toy industry. And this week, I think... More people who are not in the toy industry sent me a link to this article in the New York Post 
than at any other time. And the, and the article was basically saying that the toy industry's biggest show could leave NYC after COVID cancellations. And it really is. It's a full article of speculation on what's going to happen with Toy Fair, whether it's going to move earlier What's going to happen? Is it going to leave New York? Richard, this is something you and I discuss all the time. What are you thinking right now? I thought that the actual question of should we move the show out of New York is very sobering. And it really caused me to think pretty deeply about it. Chris, we are in the toy industry, a nomadic people. I love when you say that. And we are. We move from place to place. That that is our life. Toy Fair, which has been in New York since 1903, is the one permanent element of our migratory life. I'm using this only as a metaphor. It's our Mecca. Right. All of us who are spread out all over the United States, we know that in February, we're going to go to New York. We're going to celebrate the fact that we made it through another year. We're going to celebrate with our friends and our colleagues. Do not take a place of permanence away from a migratory people. It's interesting because I think that everything you're talking about is about the human infrastructure of the business and not so much about the business of of selling toys and the, the issue of moving it earlier because people want to step up production or retailers want to make decisions earlier. That's all part of it. I think the larger issue is we're going to have to redefine what a trade show means. What are the elements that we want and that still work? And how do we how do we bring those together? Historically, Toy Fair in 1903, it happened in New York because the fledgling U.S. toy industry was trying to meet buyers who were getting on boats to Europe to buy toys. And they, they met them when they came back. And Throughout the the 20th century, it was always in New York, and it moved from February to sometimes as late as April, depending on when production was. So it's it's also been a movable feast as well. But I think you speak to something very elemental, which is the need for the industry to come together, to share information, to share insights, and, and really to celebrate. Chris, I was thinking about the wonderful complaining that we all do. I mean, really, we complain. I I can remember being on my back, (laughs) middle of 37th Street, on the on the middle of the street where I had fallen in a blizzard. And these are memories that are part and parcel of our of our experience with Toy Fair. I, I know people complain about cost of hotels and the cost of food. In uh, the cost of air flights, and I understand it, but it's all part of this experience we have been having and complaining about since 1903. <laughs> right, of course. So my concern is if we move to an impermanent location, it, it won't be the end of Toy Fair, Chris, but I feel it will be the first step in a, a, a highway to insignificance. It's a, it's a big risk. I think that the industry is changing, how, how the business is done is changing. And yet at the same time, we need to be together. I think that that's something that everybody has consistently looked forward to. I know for me that toy fairs, whether here or in Germany or Hong Kong or, or many years ago in Paris, 
it was the place where I could see just by walking around what was going on in the business. It's when you got a sense of what was the zeitgeist? What is the, what are the trends that are emerging? What are people investing in? And where do we think that's going? And it's a, that would be, I think, a big loss. And yes, we can see things in isolation. And you and I have sat on Zoom calls while people presented lines to us. But it doesn't have the same human connection. Now, Chris, let me say it very clearly. I have made a case that Los Angeles is emerging as a major toy center. There's no reason the Toy Association shouldn't have some kind of a footprint there, even at a different time of year. And it doesn't mean that you can't change the way business is done in Toy Fair. But to move that show out of New York, I believe, will really endanger probably the most important institution we have in the United States for the toy industry. I do think that what this article brings out is that this is a very important topic of conversation that's going on throughout the industry at the association level, at the manufacturer level, at the at the venue level. People are trying to figure out what is a toy fair going to look like moving forward? When should it be in the development process and sales process? And how are we going to continue to come together as an industry? Because I think that that is the one thing, as you said at the outset of this, that nobody wants to lose. I think we should look upon Toy Fair as an institution and a ritual that certainly has a functional purpose, but that its existence is far more than function. And we need to embrace that and make sure that this show continues to prosper so that future generations of toy industry members will have something to complain about. (laughs) Well, and after two years of not being there, I'm ready for the institution. Let me just tell you. (laughs) (laughs) This is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, and my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the Toy Guy, and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. If you like these episodes, we do hope you'll share them with your friends and colleagues, and we look forward to having you listen in next time.